Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Infertility and Me podcast. I'm your host, Monique Farouk, women's health advocate and IVF mom to one. Thank you, friends, for being here for another episode, tuning in, getting the help that you so deserve and need. And if you know somebody that knows somebody that's struggling and they're they're having issues trying to conceive, suffering from miscarriages, part of the LGBTQIA community, send them right on along over here or to the Instagram page for infertility related content as well. But I appreciate you, friend, for tuning in to another episode. Today, we have a friend who is not really new to the community, but I have just become aware of her in the last two months. And her name is Erica. So thank you, Erica, dear, for coming on to the show and giving us your time today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's a good, it's a great podcast. <laughs> I listen to many good episodes, so it's it's cool to oh, be here. Oh, good. I'm so glad you found some ish, some episodes that were related to what you're going through, or just getting the the support in and feeling like you are close to others who are still in the throes and or who came before you. It is not easy speaking on the public platform, as I'm sure you know, when you started your blog and your Instagram page and speaking about infertility and fertility related struggles. So yeah, I don't take it for granted that you have chosen to be on the show today and offer your story, wisdom, and your experiences. So I always ask everybody, how did you and hubby meet? How did that all happen? Yep. So my husband, Mike, and I have been together for 11 years. We met in college at the very end. So I was a junior. He was a senior, six weeks out to graduation. And we met through Tinder when Tinder first came out. I don't know that Tinder is used so much today for dating. It might be used for other things, but it was when I was in college used for dating. So we met through Tinder in college up at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. And then the rest is history. We've been married for almost four years now. Congratulations. Yes, that is a huge milestone because I feel like because you're you guys are a lot younger than me, so I feel like that the younger generations are not getting married as much or not staying in committed relationships as much. It's all about the hookup now, especially with these apps and such. So I'm glad that you guys have been able to work through the things, work through the growth of life. That is never easy at all. And so yeah. I want to ask also, since you are still in the middle of things, how has your mental health been this summer and how are you coping or have been coping with trying to conceive? And then we'll go into your diagnosis after. So my mental health was in a very bad place um, about six months ago. So it's not hard to talk about the mental health aspect without the story, but um, ultimately, I went into my infertility journey two years ago, very naive and with a lot of false hope, which is something that I try to advocate against, (laughs) to be quite honest. I think realism and data and stats and odds and truly understanding the chances that you have at success when you're choosing different treatment options and you're working with different physicians, I think that knowledge is power and it allows you to move through the process quicker and more efficiently. But I felt like when I first started the process, I didn't necessarily have that knowledge, but I do have a background in pharmaceuticals. I work in the industry. Actually, so does my husband. We're both in marketing and sales in the pharma industry. So really having a deep understanding of like package inserts and indications for different drugs and what it means when something is statistically significant, like all of that really came into play in my infertility journey. And I didn't expect that. So I think it helped me move through things a little bit faster than maybe someone who was coming in totally cold. But my mental health after learning that we would likely not be able to pursue IVF any further with my own eggs was probably the lowest point of my life. I've never had mental health issues before. I never saw a therapist. I never needed to. I was a pretty happy-go-lucky person. But the situation and the hopelessness and the desperation, especially in the midst of so many of my close friends getting pregnant right when I realized I was going to have such tremendous challenges because it always works mm-hmm. that way. You're like not always, doesn't it? You can't go through a battle unless everyone else around you gets pregnant. It's just, it's like the rule of thumb. 
So yes, um, I agree. I was at a point where there were actually parts of me at times that was almost either questioning like what else there was to live for, which was a very scary place to be because that's not how my mindset's ever been. And I did seek out fertility therapy. I did seek out support groups. And ultimately, all of that led me to writing my blog. And writing my blog allowed me to set myself free. And the articles, I think at this point, I've published about 48 articles on all different conditions, different ways of reframing aspects of this journey, mental health. I'm glad it's touched other people, but if anything, it helped me the most. So through writing, I found a lot of healing. Yeah, that's wonderful. And not wonderful in the sense of all that you've had to go through, through your diagnoses, just coming to the realization of things, but just having that outlet. And I think it's difficult putting it on page and then rereading it. But it in, and then when you go back, you do see the growth in yourself and how you process things. So I know it's probably been really tremendous help to you to be able to put those things into words and articulate them the way that, that you're feeling in that moment. I was a big journaler for many years. I'm out of practice now for the most part because I've been doing a lot of reading and not writing, but I understand and, and I can relate. I totally can relate. It does something to you to be able to put it on those pages and get it out and be able to read back on it. And is motherhood something that you always knew that you wanted or did you always know you wanted to be a mom and did your husband always know he wanted to be a dad or is it something that you came together once you guys met? No, I think we always knew. And like, when you talk about, you know, you guys were young, we were, I was like 19 when I met my husband and we stayed together. We never broke up. We've been together consistently for 11 years. And I think part of that was like, we Mm -hmm. always had similar goals in life Mm -hmm. and values. We come from very similar families with very similar, like cultural and just like traditional beliefs. So it was an easy fit. I knew I always wanted to be a mom and I always thought it would just be a given when I was ready. Like I had never... I had no idea that there's some women that are just like born without eggs or that there's conditions that Mm -hmm. they do not have good egg quality or that there's men that are just like born without sperm or that all these, I didn't know that. Like to me, it's just to get everybody sperm on a silver platter. And that's just the fact of the matter. I didn't know that there could be any challenges. And of course you never think it's going to be you. Like it's such a far, you hear about IVF. Heck no. Yeah. Yeah. You just, and I remember joking, joking with my husband years ago. Oh God, we better get started. I'm going to be 30. We don't want to have to do IVF as if that was such a crazy thing. And then you come to find out like almost every other person has done it. So there's just a lot of lack of education around how common different things are. I totally agree. And to your point about you just think that it's going to be a given, essentially, when you're ready to do it. Stop taking the birth control, not using condoms anymore. We're just living our best freaking lives, doing what we do. And then because I think because we don't have issues with the physicality of our reproductive organs, some, not all, that makes it seemingly more possible and attainable and within our reach. And we don't need to think about it it's going to happen. It's going to be what it is. Now, of course, like you said, there's so many different nuances to medical issues and people born without uterus, such as our MRKH and such like that. So yeah. And it's so funny how we become hyper aware of these things after we are diagnosed ourselves. Right. And yeah. the healthcare system. And I actually wrote an article about this, the healthcare education systems. We're so obsessed with preventing teen pregnancy that we don't educate about protecting future fertility. So when you're going through like health class or you're learning about your period, which is completely and inaccurately described to all young girls. And I wrote an article called period cycles in plain English because I really felt like that needed to be out there in the universe. But I remember my mm-hmm. mom read the article and she goes, what? That's how it works. Like my own mother didn't know. So listen, it was unheard of. Okay. My mom was, yeah. born, she's a baby boomer and she wasn't even allowed to say the word pregnant. Okay. She right. would get slapped like, in the mouth. Even my own, a lot of my girlfriends read the article and they're like, they had no, we, who, who knows? Who yeah. would ever know? Every month you get a period and there's multiple eggs that fight to be the dominant egg. And then the rest of your eggs are dumped. And this is how nobody knows like how it really works. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of the issue. And I advocate for that a lot is that if young men and women knew that it wasn't going to be a given when you were older, that you can have kids and that some people, one in six have various different types of challenges. And Oh, by the way, some of these have indicators at your age. So if you're experiencing like really heavy periods or you're missing periods or you're 
experiencing certain things, you can actually get diagnosed now and potentially be doing things to help mitigate like risk. But we don't talk about those issues. And we just like make boys and girls think that if you breathe on another person, they're going to get pregnant. So I wish there was more of a balance around like I said, like preventing teen pregnancy, but protecting future fertility, because then you would have people more set up later in their life for reality. Like you don't go into family planning thinking it's a given. You've been educated to understand that there's multiple things that could cause it to not be a given. And so when it happens to you, you're not like spiraling and like on the like the brink of life because there was at least some awareness to what could happen. And I don't see that. That that wasn't my experience. And that's part of, I think, where my spiral came from, because it was just so unbelievable that this could be the reality for someone who's 29 years old. You hit the nail on the freaking head. It definitely feels like a freaking spiral effect from the time of the couple months go by, nothing's happening to the diagnosis to you being, having the what feels like a movie scene playing out. You're sitting in the RE clinic for the first time, right? Spiraling is like the the perfect way of describing what it feels like. I couldn't have said it any better. Oh my gosh, you're so right, facts. Everything you said is facts. And so, when did you guys discuss starting to try? How long had you guys been married, or did you get married and knew that okay, we'll give it a year or two, then we'll start trying? How did that happen for you guys? Got married right before COVID. We got married in October of 2019. So okay. the world ended a couple months later. <laughs> and we basically spent COVID just like enjoying married life together. We were in the process of getting our puppy who's now almost two years old. And we were doing mm-hmm. um, home renovations because we had actually purchased a house a few years before we got married. So we were working on that. So like the kid thing was, we're not going to try until my husband turns 30. So that was about two mm. years into our marriage. For him, that was like the magical number. So literally, as soon as he turned 30, I was 29. We started trying. And I was just with a friend the other night and she was laughing. She was like, remember when we were on that trip and you were like, Mike and I started trying. I could be pregnant right now. And you were so giddy. And then two years later, like everything that happened, like you had, we had no idea like how this was going to get so out of control. But yeah, so we tried for a year. Naturally, nothing happened. But I wasn't ever thinking... I'm not going to have a genetic child. That's I'm thinking like, oh, maybe we need to go see a doctor. Like maybe there's just like a pill I need to take or a procedure I need to have. Like maybe there's something wrong with him. Like I'm not thinking at this point, you're never going to have genetic children. That's not on my radar. We go to a fertility clinic. Actually, I should say we interviewed three different fertility clinics. And Thank I was... Uh, Yeah. And I had a list of like questions. I had done a lot of research, but again, I work in the pharmaceutical industry. So I know like how to call bullshit with doctors Mm -hmm. and I'm comfortable challenging them because as a sales rep, that's what you do in your career. You're like challenging doctors based on data and stats about your product. So I was comfortable kind of pushing back on them about certain things. And I was Mm -hmm. really looking for two things when I was interviewing my clinics. Number one, did they or did they not believe in unexplained infertility? Because Mm -hmm. I do not believe in unexplained infertility. And so if they did, they were written off. I wanted somebody who could tell me that they believed in undiscovered infertility, but not necessarily unexplained. So that was really important to know that they were going to do like a lot of testing. The second thing that I was really looking for was somebody who was going to be like a very straight shooter. I didn't want to be like babied or have anything be sugar-coated. I was looking for like a bedside manner that was going to be very like data-driven and factual because this was a very expensive process. And I realized shortly after I got my diagnosis, like what this was going to look like. And I mm-hmm. did not mm-hmm. being on the carousel for longer than I had to. So I wanted somebody that was going to help me get from point A to point B quickly. And so what that looked like is I started at my OB And he said, you need to, because this was actually a new OB. I was seeing an old OB for a while. And I was telling her that I had horrible period pain. And I was like being hospitalized Mm -hmm. and vomiting. And my whole life I had horrific periods. Mm -hmm. And I thought that those horrific periods coupled with the infertility was potentially endometriosis. And she dismissed me wholeheartedly. I ended up seeing an endo-PCOS specialist OB. And he was like, you are classic endo. Coupled with an infertility, we need to do a laparoscopy surgery. So he did the surgery. I got diagnosed with stage three. It was like three weeks before my 30th birthday. He said, okay, you're all cleared out now. Go ahead and try. But that's unfortunately also like a load of BS because it only works if you're blocked. If the endo is blocking your tubes, then clearing you out helps. But if the endo is on your ovaries, 
and it's creating inflammation on your vital organs, it's also damaging your egg reserve. And that has absolutely nothing to do with your tubes being blocked, but they don't tell you that. Then I started to interview fertility clinics after a couple months of being cleaned out, didn't do anything. And I found my doctor, Dr. Stephen Halter with Gold Coast IVF. And I just knew that he was the right doctor for me because I had done a lot of research about endo and what kind of conditions that can result in. And so I had an idea going into it. There might be something wrong with my egg reserve. And when he did all of my blood work and tested everything for my husband and confirmed that the only issue with us was a low AMH and a, a DOR, a diminished ovarian reserve diagnosis, I at that point, like I had done my research, so I knew what that meant. And I liked that he was like, yeah, we're not doing that IUI crap. <laughs> That's exactly how we said it. Very New York. We're not doing that. We're going right, yeah, we're going right to IVF because IUI really is only going to be effective if you have normal functioning sperm and eggs and you're just having an issue with them meeting. But in your case, like with DOR, you know that your egg quality is going to be likely compromised regardless of age because they'll tell you till you're blue in the face that DOR doesn't impact egg quality when you're young, but guess what? I've yet to meet anyone that it doesn't. So I don't know where that comes from. (laughs) When you're scraping from the bottom of the barrel, you're scraping from the bottom of the barrel. And it doesn't matter if you're like 25 or 45, Mm because there's women in their 40s that have freakishly high AMHs. There's people that are young that have freakishly low AMHs. And so what they have left isn't that good. And he had said that. He said, look, you're young, so quality might be on your side, but it might not. Mm -hmm. And so he moved me right to IVF. We did one cycle. I got two eggs, which of course is like pitiful for IVF. One fertilized and it died on Mm -hmm. day three. So he said, look, and I'm not going to do another cycle just for the sake of doing another cycle. And this is why I love him. He said, let's try something different. So Mm -hmm. we tried a platelet-rich plasma therapy, also known Mm -hmm. as PRP. It's getting a little bit more popular. I have mixed feelings on it now based on my experience, but it was a hefty out-of-pocket therapy that I paid for. And he basically drew out my blood during my Mm -hmm. egg retrieval. He reprocessed it in a machine and then shot those platelets while I was under anesthesia back Mm -hmm. into my ovaries with the goal of having my follicles that I didn't really have many grow back so we could get more Mm -hmm. eggs out. I have to wait three months to see the best results. So Mm -hmm. it's not like the PRP therapy, and then you go right into another egg retrieval. And that's actually when I started blogging because I was Mm. going and waiting three months to see if all the money and the time that I was investing in this therapy was going to result in giving me the return. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have no idea at this point. So we um, did a second egg retrieval three months later and it did work from a quantity standpoint. So I actually got 12 eggs, which is a lot lot for DOR. That's a vast difference. It was a huge difference, but the problem is they were all horrible quality. So we got 12 eggs and they basically all fertilized because my husband has great sperm, which he, he's quite proud of. Um, Aren't they all? (laughs) And the lab is phenomenal at Gold Coast IVF. They have very high like lab success rates, which I do think makes when you're doing ICSI and stuff, but they like fertilized and they were all growing until Mm -hmm. day three around and then every single one died and that's just that's how dor is egg quality contributes to loss at at day three like day three is when they're going to die off so Mm. we didn't make a single embryo again and at this point i'm like what are we doing we're now thousands of dollars into this we have yet Mm. to make a single embryo like um and that's when i started to like spiral because i felt like i was running out of options and my doctor actually was pushing me to do another round he wanted to put me on a drug called omnitrope Mm. I look back about it a lot because Omnitrope has been on the market for 25 years and it's not indicated for infertility. It's actually indicated for children who have like growth plate problems. So it helps like children that are alive, like 10 year olds get become taller and bigger when they use it for infertility purposes, okay. they're using it off label. And I'm aware of that because again, I know a lot of drugs that are on the market. Exactly. I understood that. So I said to him, I said, okay, if you're going to use this drug off-label, that's fine. I know there's some drugs that have off-label use, but my question is in 25 years, why hasn't this drug company put the indication for infertility in their package insert? Because Mm. if it actually works and has a statistically significant impact on egg quality, which is what you're telling me, the pharmaceutical company would have paid to put that information and those studies in the PI because then the marketing team could be marketing Mm. that product and making money off of it within that cohort of patients. And they're not. And so 
I've been very weary of off-label drug use with older drugs, maybe with newer mm. drugs done yet. They're still figuring it out. But with a drug that's been on the market for 25 years, they've looked into that. It doesn't work in that capacity. And that's why it's not in the label. So he was like surprised, I think, that I like challenged him in that way. And he was mm-hmm. like, you're right. I'm just trying to throw another Hail Mary at you because I don't want to push you to use donor eggs and I want to give you every option. But yeah, Omnitroke is not going to necessarily do anything more different than the PRP did. I'm just trying to give you another option. But if you're asking what's going to have a statistically significant impact nothing at this point. Like we just have to see. And that's when I was like, okay, then we're done. Cause I'm not spending another penny on something that doesn't have a good odd, even though yeah. I want this to work and it's devastating that it's probably not going to a 5%, 10% chance is not, not enough, enough for me mm-hmm. when I'm spending my savings and drowning my finances to do something. And also what my body was going through with all those hormones and mentally what I was going through, like, it has to be worth it. The risk has to outweigh the reward. And that's just how I process things. And it just, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to in this. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. That's not to say that if you do IVF for 15 rounds, you're not going to eventually make that miracle eupoloid embryo. With DOR, you probably will at some point. The odds are that at some point you will, but at what cost? And that's really what like each person has to determine for themselves. Like when is enough? I didn't want to spend the next five years of my life, like my early thirties in the most like misery and pain that I've ever been in. That wasn't worth it to me. So we made it very hard decision to move on. And part of processing that grief was actually putting pen to paper and writing a goodbye letter to the genetic children I will never have. And we did like a seance kind of like mm-hmm. with like mm-hmm. and, made it know. ritualistic in a way so yeah. that it really just gets into your subconscious mind. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. yeah. And I, I definitely get it. That, to that dream, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And then prepared to welcome a new one. And part of welcoming the new one was, of course, doing a lot of research. But the big thing was connecting with other people. I was having a really hard time, like finding people that also were out about using donor eggs. And everybody that I would find was like typically older and they were using donor eggs because life circumstances had led them to get married later or they were got divorced. Now they're remarried. So I was meeting a lot of people in their like late 40s. And I was like, but where are the girls in their 20s and 30s that like did everything quote unquote right and mm-hmm. like in a timeline and have a medical condition and can't do this because not that one is worse or better than the other, but I think the mental processing of that is different because mm-hmm. you feel, mm-hmm. but I did the, the things I checked the boxes and now why is this such a problem? It shouldn't be. I'm young. And so Absolutely. Yeah. by coming out online and using my Instagram platform to share my IVF journey and announce that we were moving on to donor eggs, it connected me with literally thousands of strangers of people that also are in the same boat and has made me feel so much less alone. I did start a support group. We have 55 women and counting all using donor eggs for different reasons, all different ages that I chat in like every day. So like mm-hmm. my friends online, yeah. um, but then I have my blog. And so with all these different outlets, like it's it, like I said, I think it helps other people to have a person to look to, but it, it really, at the end of the day, selfishly helps me. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it's selfish at all because I, actually I think it's quite the opposite because you're not just thinking about yourself and you're not just, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, but I don't think it's selfish at all, honestly, because can't get any through any of this alone. And we know that we can't get through life alone, which is what baffles me a lot about my own story. It's like, how did I think that I was going to get through infertility alone when we can't fucking do life alone? What was I thinking? And so that's great that you got the support, created the support that you needed in the way that you needed, in the way that you process things early on. Because for many people, it takes them years like I did to find support, get support, create support, whatever the case may be. And I think it just takes a little time if you're someone who's not looking to create it to find what community best resonates with you. And Mm -hmm. so in relation to your diagnosis, did you ever find any support groups that were as diverse as the one that you've now created? 
So there, there's a couple companies that do have support groups. One in particular I joined, it's called Infertility Unfiltered. And they do have, yep, mm-hmm, they do have some support groups. So that's how I started. Like I paid for one of those um, like donor conception support series and I did that and it was very helpful and it was very educational. Um, but the support group is part of a WhatsApp group and I'm not super active on WhatsApp. I'm more active on Instagram. So my Instagram chat that I started also too, like it's just free to be part of an Instagram mm-hmm, chat. Mm-hmm. You know, WhatsApp thing was like a paid, you paid to be part of the group. So right. we've had, like, I've had more people just in general that have joined the Instagram thing. And they ha- it has been a little more diverse because the infertility unfiltered company is based out of California. So a lot right. of the West coast, I wasn't meeting a ton of East coast people through that support group. Mm. So the one that I, has people from actually like all over the world. We have people from the UK, Australia, England, everywhere. <laughs> so Wonderful. it's been and, and people on the East Coast and people that I've actually been able to meet up with. So mm-hmm. I was really happy that I did the Infertility Unfiltered group. And then I'm glad that it inspired me through connection to start my own support group that was a little mm-hmm. bit more tailored to like my geographical location. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about that real quick, just in case somebody's new to the egg donorship world and they were just looking for a little bit more information, mm-hmm. which will be also in the show details, you guys, for to to connect with Erica and everything. And mm-hmm. so you guys go through, through the cycles of the Omnitrope, you're done with it. Kaput, did you take a break until you decided to go the egg donorship, right? Or did you go no, straight into... Absolutely. I'm like, we got to get going. Now that I don't have to be tortured yeah. anymore to get these like eggs, mm-hmm. like where are we getting them from? And and yeah. I felt very passionate about going the frozen route. And I know that like mm. with egg, in the egg donor world, it's so funny with each unique issue you have in infertility, you always have people on one side or the other. And there's always mm. a controversial standpoint about all these random topics that you would never think would be controversial, but they are. So within the donor egg community, there's people that feel very strongly about fresh donors and people that Mm. feel more about frozen donors. I think there's pros and cons to both. It's based on what you want. For me, I was going to have a nervous breakdown if I had to go through another egg retrieval. And it didn't matter if it was mine or someone else's. I was never doing another egg retrieval again. I wanted the egg now. I wanted them mature. I wanted them in good quality. And I wanted to know exactly how many I was getting. I didn't want to go through a fresh cycle with a donor who's like a live human being who could get sick, who could forget to take her medicine, who could not produce. I had too much PTSD from my own egg retrievals and I just wanted to go the frozen route. I think the downside of the frozen route is that sometimes not all of the eggs you purchase will de-thaw. So you have to consider that. And the other piece of it is that if you want to have multiple children and you buy eggs in lots of six, which is typically how they're purchased, you might not end up with enough embryos for future siblings. You might have to purchase another lot of eggs. And so then your children may not be 100% genetically linked to each other. That matters to some okay. people. That did not matter to me. Yeah. I was at the point where I'm like, if they're not genetically mattered to me, like if they're not genetically linked to me, then what does it matter? At that point for me, I the see. way I thought was like, who cares? Like, it's fine. Because if, in your mind, it's just like regular traditional adoption. Yeah, Basically. like in my mind, yeah. not so much like it. Well, I, just in a sibling aspect, if they weren't going to be genetically tied to one another, is what I meant. I should have reworded that. Yeah, yeah. is what I meant. Yeah, okay. Saw, the reason I saw it that way is because I just have come to the belief that whatever, however, like whoever, like whatever the way of getting to our children, which I believe have always been destined to be our children, I just think that mm-hmm. the best that they're coming to us in is what we're figuring out. So however we have to get those little souls into our life, Mm -hmm. I don't really think it matters. And so for me, they're my kids. I'm growing them in my body. Who's genetically linked to who? Like that to me doesn't matter. And I've like totally gotten over that. So that's why I was okay. I said, let's get the, the six, a lot of six frozen eggs which actually, ironically for us, my donor ended up having two additional eggs that you could purchase a la carte. Mm. I ended up actually eggs. Sometimes that happens. You can purchase additional eggs a la carte. But I ended up getting eight. And I had said, I'm like, if we make one embryo, if we make two, if we make three, like whatever it is, we're going to try to have our two to possibly three children out of these eggs. And then if I have to purchase more eggs in the future... 
then we're, we will, or maybe I'll consider adoption or something else. Like I was very open. Oh, good. So okay. it's crazy because yeah. we actually ended up making five embryos out of the eight eggs. Wow. Wow. So I was so nervous about not making a lot. And then we mm-hmm. actually make a lot. So yeah. Um, yeah. So it worked out and we're in the process of preparing for our transfer and everything. And part of that included a Lupron suppression protocol. Okay. Because I have endo, which was the hardest thing physically I've gone through in my life. Emotionally was the choice to move on from my own genetics. That was hard. Physically, the Lupron suppression protocol, I would not wish that on my worst enemy. Being in medicated menopause at 30 years old, during the summer, <laughs> where you're hot flashing Jeez. every hour, multiple times an hour, through the night, all to all the time, it was the hardest experience of my life. Yeah, there was a lot of prep work to get to this point, I but I felt ask like you, yeah. I wanted yeah. to do that prep work because we spent so much money on these donor eggs. I wanted to feel like we did everything possible to have success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. And ooh, what a whirlwind, the Lubron. I didn't have to do it, but I've spoken to many people in the community who have, and everybody pretty much has the same similar experience, some more severe than others, some severe as yours. Yeah, yeah that's a ride. That's a ride. I'm glad you went through your symptoms of that too, because just in case a friend is listening and they're going through it and they're like, <laughs> I'm not effing crazy. It's just the meds. It's not me this time, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that too as well. And um, I'm scared of menopause now, but yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned it. With real menopause. Yeah, it's a little different, yeah. You're getting weaned off of mm-hmm. your, over the course of time. So your body has time to adjust. With Lupron Depot, they give you a huge shot in your butt. Right. And within 24 hours, you have no estrogen. Full on symptoms. Very bland off. So it's very, you're like being slingshotted. And that's a very different experience than like natural weaning. For sure. I was just being silly. Yes. It's, yeah. I know it's quite different, especially since you're going basically from zero to 100, as you stated, in the 24 hour period. Wow. Did you with the did you use an agency for your egg donorship? Did you involve an agency? You ha- did you have to go through the criteria of the dating app where you're looking at she's this tall, she's that tall, hair color? Did you guys go through that process as well? Yeah. So the way that it worked, so my doctor also was very passionate about the use of frozen eggs for mm-hmm. you know, just all the different reasons that we discussed. So he had two different banks that he suggested we look at frozen eggs through. We ended up going with my egg bank. They were wonderful to work with, but we also were working with Donor Egg Bank USA and they were also okay. great to work with. So I was actually signed up with both agencies working closely with customer service reps to try and find a match. And we just ended up going with my egg bank because I just ended up falling in love with my donor and she was only available through that agency. So that agency got my business, but it took about three weeks because it's very, this experience is very similar to when you're in college and you have to sign up for classes at the registrar Mm -hmm. and you have to get the class by a certain time. And if you don't, you like, don't get the class. That is exactly how it is on these donor sites. And I've heard it's the same for sperm as well. So these donors will be up for like 12 to 24 hours and then like Mm -hmm. they are gone. So if you find Mm. you have to have your 20 plus thousand dollars or whatever it's going to be, you have to have that ready to go right in that moment. There's no thinking about it. We had started looking. It took us about three weeks to find the one. As soon as I saw her profile, because I was like refreshing probably two or three times a day, I was like refreshing the website, trying to look for new donors. And as soon as her picture came up, I was like my God, this person, she's like my twin. It's like scary. And I'm not here advocating to anyone that wants to use donor eggs that you need to find your twin. You absolutely do not. You're purchasing a set of genetics and you don't know how that's going to mix with your husband's and you have no idea how your kid is going to look. And even with your own genetics, you can't guarantee that. And it's really more important that a healthy proven donor that you're getting your money's worth. So I'm not advocating that you need to stress yourself out and find your twin. I just randomly did. Yeah. And he happened to be one of their most proven donors on the site. So she had children of her own, but she mm-hmm. also had donated three other times and had like, I think eight or nine different successes with her eggs wow. and had a 99% default rate and an 86% pregnancy rate. Her stats were like high. That is insane. Wow. So I, that like, sounds... Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What were you going to say, dear? Yeah. I was going to say, like, when I loved the way that she looked, but then I also coupled it with the stats, 
it was like a slam dunk. So we purchased like immediately. We did have to take a loan for a portion of the eggs and we took care of that with a company that's affiliated through the bank. So they help Mm -hmm. you. And once you reserve a donor, you have two weeks to come up with the money. Like you have some time to figure out the loan situation, but not a ton. And if you don't, then they release that donor back into the pool and then you can lose the donor. So it was a bit of a stressful time with the paperwork aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would have done my transfer way earlier, but we decided to do this Lupron Depot suppression protocol and that took three months. So they just shipped the eggs and the eggs just sat at the doctor. And because the eggs were frozen, Mm -hmm. my doctor explained that he didn't want to really compromise the DNA any further. And because she was so proven and my husband had all genetic testing, including chromosomal translocation completed, and he didn't have any type of karyotyping problem. Because of that, he felt confident that we did not need to genetically test these embryos. So he wanted to do a fresh transfer to give that first embryo the best possible chance. So it was really psychotic is the only way that I can explain this experience. (laughs) I was on the medication for three months preparing and going through literal hell. And then they, at the end of like my transfer protocol, they're going to unfreeze the eggs they fertilize them. And then the doctor calls you the morning of the transfer and says, Mm -hmm. this is what we have come in or don't. And if he says out of all these eggs, we made nothing like you have to go back on Lupron. You're back. You're like, I was on PIO for five days, but you're going back on medication. So it was very stressful, but he called us that morning and we had made the five embryos and yeah. So here we are. We're still waiting to announce the results of that. Yeah. Wow. I did want to ask you to, was and I I don't want you to like totally speak for your husband but do you feel like he did you guys or did he have any resistance to going the egg donorship route was he hell-bent on it being a baby that would be possibly genetically tied to both of you guys fully he wanted me to do one more round because the doctor wanted me to do one more round and he felt like it's covered by insurance we're young just do it. Try it one more time. Give it three times. Three times is a charm. And I just, I refused. I was like, I'm not doing it anymore. Like I, I, in my mind again, like logically, like having discussion with the doctor, the odds, statistics, like it just, it didn't make sense. And I wasn't willing to put my body through something like that again for low odds. So at first it wasn't that he was resistant to us using a donor. He wanted to make sure that I wasn't like prematurely jumping the gun and that Mm -hmm. I I felt that I had vetted every option. Once he realized that I felt that way, he was very supportive. And I know that's not the case with everybody. And it's something we talk about a lot in the support group that I started because some people have a lot of challenges with getting their husband on board because they're almost more devastated than their wife or their partner with that genetic loss, if you will. Facts. My husband's very realistic and he's, if you can't do it, you can't do it. Me making you feel bad about it or sitting around being upset about it, it's not going to change it. So he was very supportive and he's, as long as you're comfortable with this and you feel like you vetted everything for your body, I fully support you. And he let me pick the donor. He barely even wanted to look at the profiles. He's pick what you're comfortable with. I don't care. Like I'm not looking at it as like, I'm having a baby with this woman. I'm looking at it as we're having a baby and we have an organ donor who's going to help us do that. So I don't even need to see her. I don't really care. Obviously he did eventually, but like Mm -hmm. he was not all that tied to, he just wanted me to be happy because he saw me go through so much hell and he saw my mental health in such a very scary place that Mm -hmm. he just wanted to see me I think be happy. And so he was really supportive and I'm very lucky for that. Yeah, that is, that's wonderful. Cause that, that when there's so many other things going on, just having one other thing on top or one other issue on top of the whole entire situation is like, you can have a breaking point and a lot of people do unfortunately force themselves or forced into breaks. Um, even if they have all their ducks in a row, because they just, they want to be, you want to be healthy for the possible child coming. You want your marriage to be in a good place with your spouse. If you're uh, in a relationship, you just, anything to make things a little bit easier. So I I really like that. He, it sounds like he detached himself in some ways emotionally to -hmm. protect himself too. Again, I don't want to speak for him and don't want you to have to speak fully for him either. Yeah. So I just was wondering, yeah. good word that you're using, like detach. Mm. I think you have to in this whole process of going through infertility. Sometimes I think you do have to detach a little bit 
because if you were meant to have genetic children and it was meant to be easy and unassisted and simple and cheap, it would have been. You're not sitting in a fertility clinic chair because you're a fertile person. You're at, you're sitting there because you're not. That's the reality. So without the support and the help of the reproductive technologies that are available to us, like it, you, you may not have had children. You may not have had genetic children. We're so blessed to have these advancements in science that this is an option because 40, 50 years ago, if you couldn't get pregnant by having sex with your partner or if you were part of the LGBT community, you just, you didn't have kids, you adopted or you just didn't have them. That was yeah. your options. So you have to be a little detached and realistic when you're sitting in that chair to say, I'm here because there's a problem and this problem may be easily fixable, but it may not. And either way, we're going to figure it out and there's options, but let me not be sitting here with the unrealistic idea that like this doctor or this treatment is going to be like this, the savior or like the answer because like it might not be because if it was going to be easy, it would have been. And so that's something I just wish somebody would have said to me when I was going through my journey is like, accept the fact that you are an infertile person or that together you are an infertile couple, accept that and realize that there's going to be like a different road or possibly a whole different path to get to where you want to get to. You will eventually get there, but it's going to look different. Like you have to just accept that. Because I think people hope that they can go to the fertility clinic and it can look the same as their best friends. It's not going to because your best friends don't have to take shots in their butt up until they're 10 weeks pregnant. <laughs> like your best friends don't have to go through all of the stuff you go through with IVF and certainly not all the stuff you go through when you mm-hmm. use donor candies. Yeah. Once you detach from what you wish it was and you just embrace what it is, it does take a lot of pressure off the situation. And I know that's hard to do because it's a vulnerable time in your life, but that's where I wish more people would like advocate and educate to help people earlier on, just be more realistic. Do you feel like, or did you ever have a time where in the process of trying to conceive where even till now, did you ever have a moment where you couldn't do that or you have found it difficult to get to that point of being able to emotionally detach from certain aspects of the process, I'll say, because I feel like there are going to be things that you're upset about, just like when you've had the unsuccessful cycles and getting your diagnosis, like you can't help but be emotional about that, but just the other aspects. How did you, you stated how you moved through it a little bit already just now, you were dropping gems. And so what did that look like for you? What made it harder for me unequivocally is Mm -hmm. again, all of my close friends all got pregnant within, and I'm not even exaggerating, like a six week span of each other. Mm. I think in the last eight months, I've gone to 14 baby showers. It's actually becoming like a sick joke because like people will message me online and they're like, you're always at a baby shower. Are you friends with anyone who's not pregnant? And it's no, like I turned 30. And all my like close friends turned 30. And within six weeks of that, everybody was pregnant. So my issues were not as big of a deal to me before that happened because I didn't feel the pressure of a timeline. Mm. Once I felt the pressure of a timeline and I felt like God in the universe was like punishing me and leaving me out of something socially, that is when, to be honest, the situation became very dark for me. And it wasn't anything that anybody was doing. It was just the situation, like the reality of the situation that like I got married and bought a house and did a lot of things before basically all of my friends. Yet now every single person is moving into this next phase and they're like doing it together. They're like bonding over it. They're like talking about like the playdates they're going to have. And they're like having brunches and calling them mommy hangouts. And I went from feeling like I had a place socially within my friend group. Mm-hmm. and my life and feeling normal to feeling like a freak and not only mm-hmm. burden to my husband and my family, but in a weird way, I felt like a burden to my friends because they're also excited that they're pregnant. And there's like literally eight of them pregnant at the same time. And I'm like the Debbie Downer. And so I'm trying to maintain relationships while also maintaining my sanity. And I'm the only one like dealing with this. And it was that piece of it is what I think sometimes isn't always talked about either is like the social 
timeline and just like aspect, mm-hmm. like you just, you start to feel very left out and you feel like you don't have a place with your friends. And like, these are the people that you love that you didn't ask for this circumstance to happen, but this circumstance is like, it's like making you a stranger to the people that you've always been so familiar with. That is when I would say I really took a, a, a deep dive into my, my mental health issues with this situation. And I think that mm-hmm. just basically what happened is a lot of the fears I had around, oh my God, everyone's pregnant. Mm-hmm. It didn't play out the way I thought. So like I mm-hmm. thought that everyone was going to be pregnant and I was going to like basically lose all my friends because I wasn't, right? Because that's like the irrational. That's what we tell ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What happened was they all had kids and everybody was still my friend. And actually one of them, my best friend asked me to be the godmother of her son because she felt that I was more supportive and involved with her and her child's life than some of her like extended family. And Mm -hmm. that to me was like the most validating thing of the whole experience is like, I went through infertility and had every friend around me have kids. And I tried so hard to be the bigger person and support Mm -hmm. and care. And I always felt like maybe I wasn't doing enough. And then one of those girls asked me to be the godmother because of how supportive she felt I was. Mm -hmm. And that was like, when I realized that like a lot of the fears that I've had around like a lot of these like social aspects of my life were truly more fear-based than they were like reality-based. And that's something like, I feel like I'm still working through, but Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just can't see the reality of a situation until you're on the other side of it. Yeah, you can't. It's really difficult. And you couldn't have said it any better. And I couldn't have said it any better. That's exactly how it feels. And we just begin to make up all these stories in our mind, like you said, what the outcome could be. And usually it's not really going to happen like that. It's entirely different or it's not as gut-wrenching as we we perceive it may be. And so if there was, if any, a last word for our friends in the community who are struggling with the social aspects, holidays are coming, right? It's about to get real thick these last couple of months of the 2023 year. So what would you, what was, what's something that you would have for them going into this season where there's a lot of social things happening? Yeah. So there's, there's a quote that I heard like, at the maybe like a year ago and I was just like it gets me through everything mm-hmm. so it's basically maybe your path is harder because your calling is higher and that I say that to myself multiple times a day because guess what even getting pregnant like even if all this donor egg stuff works out like it doesn't take away the horrificness of the journey it doesn't fix infertility I'll still have to do this for another child so it's not like pregnancy fixes it It just, it helps you move it along, but it doesn't take it away. And so sometimes I do feel that way. I feel that maybe there was a purpose for this, this pain and this suffering. And I know that I've been able to help some other people. And maybe it's just as small as that. You don't need to be like online educating thousands of people. Just be an advocate in your own community. I have started telling strangers, and this is going to sound crazy. I will tell strangers about what I went through and the fact that I'm using donor eggs because it's just an opportunity to talk about something that's taboo and educate one more random person. And there is never a time like this just happened at the gym the other day. I signed up for a new gym and they were asking me if I had any limitations. And I told them like, I'm on a bunch of medication right now. I'm an IVF patient. And they're like, oh my God, that's so crazy. My sister. I'm like, Mm. oh, what was her diagnosis? We started having a conversation. And I said, I actually have endometriosis. I don't have eggs. And because of that, I will be using donor eggs to get pregnant. And they always say, oh my God, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sorry. And so I love when that happens because then I take it as an opportunity to say, don't be sorry. Like it's a gift. And I'm so happy that I have this option because this is my only option. So don't be sorry. And I can't wait to be a mom to such a unique child. And then when you say it like that and you show somebody like, it's okay. And I'm owning it and I'm not upset. So you don't have to be upset. All of a sudden they're like, Oh my God, congrats. It it changes the whole conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I guess Mm -hmm. my point is like my, my final words would be, you don't have to be doing this on a grand scale to make an impact for one other person. You can be sharing your story and embracing your journey, even on a very small scale in a more private way, if that's what you're comfortable with, but don't hide in secrecy. I guess that there's a difference between secrecy and privacy. Privacy is being selective about what you share and who you share it with that's fine. Secrecy is like hiding in shame and keeping a secret. 
And there's no reason for that because the more we do that, the more we contribute to this shameful narrative and we make it harder for future generations of women and men or whoever to be able to just be like open and it just contributes. And so I guess that's my thing. Your path is harder because your calling is higher. And so if you're given a hard path, I don't know, find some small way to make it worth it, if not for yourself, for someone else. And by doing that, you will make it better for yourself. My mental health got significantly better when I started owning my story, embracing mm-hmm. it, excited about it, and ten helping other people also be excited about it. And now, once I do get pregnant and people find out that we're going to have a donor-conceived baby, the amount of joy, attention, accolades that this child we're going to receive is going to be off the charts because we spent so much time educating that there's so much anticipation now for this. Mm-hmm. This is not like a normal situation. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to have a normal level of attention. It's going to have mm-hmm. a higher level of attention. Yeah. I can just say that from my experience that I think embracing, educating and sharing not only helps other people, but it helps you once you get to that final outcome, have more of a celebration around what you went through. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. And we're women and we are communal by nature, we seek, thrive, and desire community. And so, yeah, facts. Facts again. Erica has dropped many gems for us today and gave us so much education and a wealth of knowledge from her pharmaceutical industry, uh, career path that she's in and has been in for a while. Girl, you gave us a lot in an hour. You gave us a lot. You gave us a lot, and I'm so appreciative of you. Where can we find you online and connect with you further? Yes. So my personal Instagram, which is, I always love to connect with people through that. It's eri.ferraro, my last name. Or you can find me on Moving Mountains for Motherhood blog. It's spelled Moving Mountains, M-T-N-S, for Motherhood blog. So that's my Instagram handle for my blog website. The website itself is just www.movingmountainsformotherhood.com, spelled the normal way. And if you like my articles and you want to be alerted when I write, sometimes they're sassy, they're funny. I try to keep Mm -hmm. it subscribe right on the website. You can subscribe with your email and then you'll be alerted. Wonderful. Thank you again, Erica. I'm so glad that we finally got our uh, schedules in sync and synchronized and was able to get on the line today and just give all the good vibes and inspiration, healing, helping to end the stigmas around infertility. I appreciate you for giving us your time and all the work that you're doing in the community of infertility, as well as egg donorship uh, for younger women especially because unfortunately there will be more of it. And as we all know, it's now one in six and not one in eight in the world globally who are suffering from infertility, uh, the impacts of infertility. And unfortunately there will be more behind us for various reasons that we won't get down into today, but just thank you, Erica. I appreciate you. And I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to talk and for you to share your story in your most vulnerable time in life with us. Appreciate you. Great. Thank you. And thank you, friends. You know where to find me on the gram, Infertility and Me Podcast, as well as on YouTube at Infertility and Me Podcast. Until next week, y'all, peace and blessings.